Good morning. I'm CJ, and uh, would you join me in standing as we hear the word of the Lord for today? Uh, we're in Luke 24. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please have a seat. Good morning. Yeah, my name is Tim. I'm the lead pastor here. It's really good to be with you. Uh, here this morning, if you're here in this room, if you're uh, watching online, um, if you're watching at a later time, uh, thanks, CJ, for, uh, for reading scripture as we start this morning. And I also just want to say uh, thank you as well for not wearing a black t-shirt. Um, for the three of you that caught that, Connor and I um, are twinning today, and Phil is trying. And so, dude, get off, get off. Like, it's embarrassing. Um, and this is just... It just also, uh, it's double embarrassing to, to do that um, because if you didn't notice, we've got some, some friends who are uh, taking some video and some pictures, uh, and so it's even worse that we're all wearing the same thing, and this is being recorded um, other than by ourselves. We are a part of a family of churches uh, throughout the Pacific Northwest. There's about 100 churches, and then throughout the, the nation, there's far more than 100. I don't know how many into the thousands, and then um, there's 13 times that uh, around the nation, uh, part of a, a, a family of churches and network called uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance. Uh, it's a denomination. Uh, that helped us start, that we have been a part of since day one for almost 20 years, that the six churches that we've helped plant uh, are all part of that denomination, except for one. Um, and so if you notice people walking around, uh, we're glad that you're here, welcome, and we're going to smile, and aside from me, look really good for you this morning. So um, that's what's going on there. Um, hey, um, a couple things. Uh, this is, uh, this is and, I, and I can't believe we're here. I can't believe it's August 27th. I can't believe it's the, the last Sunday of the summer. Um, when we planned this a number of months ago to go to Beach Day uh, and do this again, as we've done for the last several years, uh, um, it seemed so far away. And here we are praying for students and teachers and staff and administrators for school to start this week. And we're going to the beach um, this afternoon. And, and it, it got here really, really fast. Um, and so... Um, it's great that we're here, looking forward to the fall, but this, this came really fast. Um, also, I want to do a, a, a quick shout out to, to two maybe uh, groups of people. I don't know if we fully understand what Connor said a few moments ago when he said, he referenced David and Goliath, and, and you, you missed this, I'm certain of it. Our middle school students won the dodgeball competition at camp which is not a middle school camp. It was a middle school and high school camp. So put this together. High school dudes and gals lost a dodgeball competition to middle schoolers from Mosaic. Okay, there we go. Okay. That was, I, like, I, my family and I, we watched uh, Champions last night, Woody Harrelson. Um, if that can be a movie, certainly this can be made into a movie. So I'm, I'm just, I'm going to call Netflix this week and see if we can do that and get a movie made out of our middle schoolers winning dodgeball. But that's amazing. I, uh, I don't know what I would do if I was one of those high school guys that lost to that. That would, I, yeah, that would not, I wouldn't be able to handle it. So um, please, please be praying for the losers um, there. Um, the other group of people, is, is anybody in this room recovering from running or helping a team complete hood to coast? Oh, here we go. congratulations. Um, that's, if you don't know what hood to coast, 
Hood to Coast is. There's a few in our community that did Hood Coast, which was uh, you start at Timberline Lodge and run run to the coast as fast as you can, and it's you know it's just an all-out race. And so that's like 200 miles that you ran. That is really impressive. I don't know what place you finished, but kidding. There's teams and vans and, and everything. It's a whole thing. So I'm glad you survived and, and are here. Uh, hey, uh, I do have one more thing I, I do want to mention is. Um, I've talked to, I've heard two, two different stories over the last about 10 days or so um, that uh, I want to share anonymously with you, uh, but just to connect with, with the reality of where we're at as a church right now. Um, as we, uh, we started our new um, fiscal year July 1, and uh, finished last year's fiscal year, started this year, we're winding down the first two months, July and August, we're in the last week of, the, of August, obviously. And the two stories I heard, one was uh, from somebody who uh, found out that in, in the midst of a, um, a move that they had reset their, their credit card and um, their giving to our church family as Mosaic had, had stopped and they didn't realize it for about six or seven weeks and um, then found out and went, oh, whoops. And uh, so it was an interesting conversation to just talk about the reality of something that is so much a part of our lives, which is our finances. And um, when we choose to give to a church community, that that somehow can become a, um, a, a habit that we're not actually not engaged in and may not even feel. And so over the course of six or seven weeks to not, not feel that. So that prompted an interesting conversation, um, helpful one, timely one. The other was uh, somebody saying, yeah, um, we've been a part of Mosaic for some time now. Um, we've had a really fun summer and have been going fast and hard and going to a lot of different places and been around. And I realize that we have not given financially in about uh, five weeks or so as we've been traveling and just busy and want, want to start that again. So um, I don't know where you're at when it comes to your finances and being a part of a church. And if you're sitting here and you're like, this is like my first time here or second time here, I'm just checking things. I don't even know what you all are about. You don't really need to pay close attention right now. But for those of us that are here and this is our, our community and we're a part of what God is doing in and through Mosaic, um, he's asking us to have our, our finances to be a part of that. And so I share that with you because as we've gone through July and now winding down August, we have had some additional unexpected expenses combined with our giving slightly behind what our projected numbers were. And so I share that with you to say, if that's a story that sounds familiar to you, that that's not something you've engaged in and have been aware of in the last number of weeks or throughout the summer, um, would you please reconsider that and check in if you're a spouse, if you're married, family, to have that conversation. Um, and if you're a part and not giving and you're like, I've just never even considered that, um, would that be something that you consider as you are a part of what God's doing in and through Mosaic. So it allows us to do everything that we're able to do as we send kids to camp, as we gather on Sundays, as we invest in and develop and send leaders and, and all of it, and how we handle our finances plays into that. So that's where we are. I wanted to share that with you. Um, as we wrap up uh, this summer, we're looking forward to, to fall launch, to celebrating 20 years as a church on September 10th. And uh, about two years ago, we started dreaming about and planning and praying towards starting in a teaching series through the book of Acts. The book of Acts in the New Testament is about the Holy Spirit and the work of the church. And uh, as we dreamed about that, we started saying, what if we spent a long time focusing on Jesus before we get to the Holy Spirit and the church? And so we've spent almost two years walking slowly through the book of Luke which has allowed us to hear from Jesus, to look closely at Jesus, to see Jesus. Um, a guy named Luke who wrote Luke and Acts, kind of two, two books combined into one story that he wants to write, felt led to write, was prompted by the Holy Spirit to write, tells a story of Jesus and then the continuing story through his people. And so we've taken this time. I've, um, we're picking it up today as we look at the last uh, two uh, talks in Luke, and then uh, September 10th, we'll open up the book of Acts and start that together as we begin our, amazing as it is to say, the beginning of our third decade as a church. We take time to focus on and open up scripture, to read scripture together because we believe and know that it is one of the primary ways that God forms us, not just through the words on the page, but we believe that the words on the pages of the Bible are God's words to us, that Jesus is speaking to us. And so it's not just words on a page, it's not just content. It is the gateway to a relationship with the creator God of the universe. And so we take focused, dedicated, valuable time when we gather 
because we believe that that's how God forms us in relationship. And so, as you just heard a portion of scripture read by CJ, we're now gonna pray and we're gonna, we're gonna open up that together and walk through those few verses that, that she read, believing and asking and trusting that God would form us, that he would heal us, that he would change us, that he would make us into the people, the women and men that he's called us to be, and then as a community as he's called us to be. So I wanna invite you to, to pray with me and then we'll look at these words together. God, this is, this is your time and your space. You've welcomed us into your presence. You've known that we've gonna be here with you. You've looked forward to it. Would you give us a, another glimpse of who you truly and really are? Would we get a deeper sense of, of your character, your heart, most importantly, your love for us? Would we have a sense of awe of your goodness and grace and mercy and faithfulness and loving kindness? Would we be unable to fully comprehend who you fully are, but would we get a glimpse, another picture, another slice of the reality of you here with us? Holy Spirit, we confess that we, we can't do this on our own. In our humanity and all of the good and all of the brokenness that that entails, that we need you to help prompt and guide and soften and heal and transform and convict. And so right now as we're gathered, would you work in this time right now in ways that we haven't predicted or planned or anticipated? Would you even surprise us? And Jesus, as we've already sung, that you're the, you're the answer to all of our questions. We sung those words. We sung that you're the king, that you're the savior, that you're the rescuer. And so would we be willing to let go of anything else that we want to rescue us and be willing to take that step of faith that only you can be our king and our rescuer and our savior. We wanna hear your words today. It's in your name that we pray, amen. I uh, remember the first uh, adult, other than my, my mom and dad or family members, um, who I, uh, in, in my, in my kind of kid brain and awareness, um, the first adult that I thought like we had a, had a friendship, um, that we had like a conversation. Like I held my own in a conversation as a kid and it was in my living room and it was my mom's um, college roommate, this woman that remained single her entire life and we would have her over for dinner frequently and her and my mom remained good friends until she passed away. And um, so it was this really good friend of my mom and you know, and, and now looking at, at this stage of life and being able to look back on it, what it would be like to, to, to be college roommates and then to see your, your roommate get married and then eventually have kids and the, the, the fun that that would be to hang out with them. And, and she came over and I can remember sitting in our living room and she was on the couch and I was on the, the um, I was on the couch and she was on a chair and, and we're sitting there and I, you know, I, I didn't know really know or even care that much of who this, this woman was, but she loved my mom and loved our family and sat there and, and I can remember her asking me questions and I can remember thinking like, wow, she's interested in me. Um, which, is, which is great because I just uh, built this Lego thing that I am certain that she wants to hear about. And so I told her all about it and how it could fly and what it could blow up and how fast it could shoot and what it sounded like. And she just kept asking me questions that I would tell her about. And I can remember that moment of thinking, we've, we've had like a, an adult conversation and, you know, I don't know how old she is. Like, she, I mean, she might be like 170 or something, and I'm, I'm like six years old, but we just had an adult conversation. That was what I could comprehend. Like, and I just, I felt good. I felt like she's curious about me. She's interested in me. She's asking me questions. She's listening and hanging on every word that I'm, I'm sharing and, and what that felt like and what that, what that experience was like. And fast forward to uh, middle school-ish when I... Um, was interested in, in girls and noticed girls and started to try to be in conversation with girls and realizing how hard questions were. Um, and I don't, I don't know if you can relate to this. I, don't, I, I think there's, there's two kinds of people in the world, like those that know how to ask questions and those that don't. 
And in middle school, I was clearly like at a disability. Like I did not know how to ask questions. And I would remember these, these girls in class that I was like really interested in and wanted to, to be friends with and, you know, you know, potentially marry. I don't know. I was in seventh grade, but I wanted to say, hey, can, you know, can we have a conversation here in algebra class and then potentially maybe, you know, start a family. And, and so like this is like and going like we have to get to know each other. So I have to ask questions and like just like sweating and going like, why are questions so hard? And then turning like, do you like weather? Like, I, you know, like, I, like, how do you ask a question? That's really, really hard. And, and then getting into high school and then into college and admiring friends that could just sit down and talk to anyone and just ask questions and it just comes out and realizing, being curious about another person and being able to, to ask a question that engages some kind of sharing of life and information, some kind of engagement and, and relationship and friendship that starts because you can ask questions are so, so important. Being curious about another person is a way of, of loving them. Asking questions, listening to answers, building a relationship is a way that one human being connects with another human being. We're at the tail end of the book of Luke. And throughout the book of Luke, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, has asked question after question after question of people that as we read the story, it seems like he really likes. And then Jesus also asks questions about people that he seemingly doesn't really like or approve of very much. But Jesus is curious about humanity. He's curious about other people, and he asks questions, some of them really mundane and simple, some of them probing, some of them uncomfortable, some of them mysterious, but he asks questions because he cares about human beings, and he wants to get to know them. And as we've moved through, we're at the tail end. We're in chapter 24. It's the last chapter. We're in the last few verses of the last chapter, and Jesus asks his final two questions. He asks his final two questions. If you list out all the questions in, in the book of Luke that Jesus asks, there's 31. There might be 35 because a couple of them are like double questions that he you know, combines together and he asks them rapid fire, but they're kind of in the same sentence. And so there's 35 to 31 questions. We're really gonna look at the last two questions where Jesus is actually getting to know, building and deepening relationship with these disciples that he's invested his life in and given his life for. Jesus has been arrested, beaten, gone through a mock trial, been nailed to a cross, pierced with a spear, taken down from a cross, prepared for burial, wrapped up, buried, a stone's been rolled in front. And that all happened on Friday afternoon. And Sunday morning, some women show up at the tomb to grieve and to mourn. And the stone has been rolled away and there's no body and an angel talks to him. And these women go running back to their friends, the disciples, and they say on Sunday mid-morning, he's risen, he's alive, he's not in the tomb anymore. And they don't believe him and they run to the tomb and they see that he's not there. And then they run back to their room, upper room, apartment, whatever it might be, and they barricade themselves in the room we don't know how many are in there, 11, 18, 29. We don't know exactly how many are packed into this, this apartment, this house. And have, John tells us that they've locked the door. Luke doesn't say that in his gospel, but in the book of John, we find that they've, they've locked the door because they're afraid of the Romans coming to getting them because they've been friends with, really been family with this criminal who's just been crucified, Jesus. And so they're hiding in this room. Jesus has appeared to the women, and Jesus also appears to two guys, two disciples who are walking from Jerusalem where all this took place, and they're walking back to their home in Emmaus. It's called the story of the Emmaus Road. And as they walk along, a man shows up and starts talking to them, and he asks them questions. What's going on? Why are you so sad? What things have happened? And they start telling this guy that's walking with them, and then this guy starts telling them all about Scripture and the story that God has been writing throughout human history. And they sit down to eat when they get back to, to Mass. And when this guy starts eating in front of them, their eyes are opened and they realize their hearts have been burning as he's been talking about the scriptures. But their eyes are now open and they see that it's Jesus. And then Jesus does this really unique thing that you and I have never done before around a dinner table. Disappears. I mean, like literally just disappears. Just 
gone. They're eating. They realize this is Jesus. There he goes. What? I don't know what just happened, but that's awesome. They run seven miles back to Jerusalem and they knock on the locked door and they say, let us in, let us in, let us in. They let these two disciples in. And that's where our story picks up. In chapter 24, verse, verse 36, and it says this. While they were still talking about this, while they were still talking with these two disciples about what they had said, and that this is that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, and they were just walked with him on this road, and then they ate with him, and then he did this really crazy thing. He disappeared. So they're talking about this. That is what they're talking about. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Um, Jesus shows up, in the, the, the door is locked. They don't want to let anybody in that they don't know. They're listening to this story, and they're, they're debating it, right? Uh, uh, Thomas, who's, whose nickname is Doubting, Doubting Thomas is in the room, and he's not buying this at all. He's, he's like, guys, you're crazy. I don't know what you ate or how long you, you walked for or how hot it was or what is going on with you, but there's no way that Jesus is alive. I'm not buying this. And, and they're debating it and fighting, and some are excited, and their hearts are starting to wonder, oh, can Jesus really be alive? And others of them are like, this is ridiculous. We've got to arm ourselves and defend ourselves. And there's this, this tension in the room. And it's into that tension that Jesus all of a sudden just appears. He just, show, he just shows up. And like you and I, they're frightened and startled. And Jesus says to them, peace be with you. And I, I think he kind of said it like that too, like, peace be with you. I, mean, I do think Jesus has a, has a sense of humor, so maybe he was like, peace be with you. <laughs> like I, but he said the very thing that they're almost not capable of doing, which is being peaceful right then. A Abby and I were uh, on a, 18 years ago, we, we went on a, uh, with a team to a, uh, a mission trip to Cambodia, and Phnom Penh is the capital of Cambodia. And we took, our, at that time, our very young boys, Ethan and Max. Owen wasn't born yet. Um, we traveled with this team, went to Cambodia, staying with this family. The boys stayed with, with the family as we went with the rest of the team uh, off into one of the provinces and saw just the amazing work that God was miraculously doing through these house churches that were multiplying through these villages. And we're on our way back after a day of seeing and, and praying with them and singing with them in these little huts. And we're, we're driving back, kind of recounting the day and how wonderful it was. And, and we get a phone call. And uh, it's, the, it's the number of the mom of the family that our boys are, are staying with. And open the phone, because it was a flip phone, and put it up to my ear. And um, the first words out of her mouth was, uh, it's okay. Don't be scared. That's what she said. I don't think it's okay, and I'm very scared now. And what it was was, uh, it went on to tell me that... Uh, that Ethan had been uh, hurt. And the, Ethan and Max were in the pool with the other kids wrestling. Ethan took a break on the side of the pool. Uh, Max did not take a break, continued to jump on him, smashed his just perfect little face into the cement side of the pool, and we're gonna need to get some uh, Cambodian stitches, uh, which is glue. And so um, that was all happening as we're in the middle of nowhere driving back an hour away still. And so trying as a dad in a foreign country go, um, I'm, I'm, I don't know what's going to happen. I hope he's okay. I can't imagine what it feels like to be where he is right now and scared and bleeding and all these kind of things. But I can't worry about this right now because I have to make up some story to convince my wife it's going to be okay for the next hour. So peace be with you in the midst of a freaky situation is almost like impossible. Like, there probably was no one in the room that was like, oh, okay, Jesus, peace be with me. Okay, thanks. But you're dead, and you just came in. How did you get in the room, and where did you come from? And their, their, their minds went to this explanation that this is a ghost, which in itself does not bring peace. So we have Jesus is here, but he's a ghost, and he's not, he's not Jesus the, like, risen. He's Jesus the ghost, and that's, that's what explains this. And so there's this frightenedness and this emotion and this startledness. And Jesus says, peace be with you. It's interesting that in Scripture we have the, the emotion that they felt before we have the thoughts and the explanation. It says that they're startled and frightened. And, and what that actually means is that uh, we all know what it means to be startled and frightened. But, but these words carry this, this idea that things have moved 
in such a way that we weren't anticipating, that we didn't sign off on, that we didn't have any control over, that things have moved in our life, in our experience, and we're uncertain, we're scared. Things have changed rapidly. They're already startled and frightened because Jesus has been crucified and they've been for at least 48 hours wrestling through this. If you, if you count the time, we say he was in the grave three days and he was parts of three days, but it's been about 20, 48 hours that they have been, that their world has been turned upside down. They're already frightened. And then this ghost shows up and they're even more uncertain of what's going on. And so their minds then react to what they've already sensed and experienced their minds are looking for an explanation of it, and that's that this is a ghost. And so they're already moving down the road to a belief, a conviction, an understanding, a truth of what's happening, which is that Jesus is still dead, but this is a ghost. And Jesus goes on. Verse 38, he said to them, here's, here's a question. Jesus is being curious. He's asking a question. Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? And that's, that's obvious. That's easy to explain. I, I'm troubled because my whole world just got turned upside down because, well, you're asking the question, but you're a ghost, and I saw you get crucified, and I saw you get buried, and I know that you're dead. And so I'm troubled because everything I thought my life was gonna be, everything that I had trusted, everything that I had planned on has now gone and it's turned upside down. I'm troubled because everything has moved and I don't know what is stable, true, or reliable. That's, that's why I'm troubled. Why do doubts rise in our minds? For the same reasons I just shared. Everything's changed. And he says this, look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. As you see, I have. When Jesus says, are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Jesus is asking these really um, obvious questions. It still means something that somebody Verbalize them. It still means something that somebody took a deep breath and said, I'm, I'm going to ask you this. But, but they're fairly obvious. Why are you in this place? Jesus is asking a question to, to uncover and to engage the, the deepest, most significant thing that's going on in his friends at that moment. And this is a habit that Jesus has over and over and over and over again that Jesus comes after, he knows, and he comes after, and he initiates, and he exercises curiosity with every single human being, every woman and man that has ever lived, every child that has ever existed. Jesus asks questions and pursues and comes after, not the surface level of, do you like weather, but what troubles you? Why do you doubt? What, what is moving and swirling in you right now that's keeping you unsettled and certainly uncertain? What, what's going on? Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. Jesus comes right at them in the room at that time. And he doesn't begin with a defense of who he is. He doesn't begin with an explanation of who he is. He begins with where they're at and what they're struggling with. And he uncovers and reveals and brings right on top of the table, right in front of everyone, the most significant, deepest issues that are going on at the moment. Over and over and over, Jesus does this as he asks questions. Jesus asks questions because he's curious about me and he's curious about you. I printed off 31 questions. He starts with those closest to him. The first question that we have, why were you searching for me? Jesus is 12 years old and he's talking to his parents. He's in his father's house, he's in the temple and the whole, the whole clan is headed back to their, to their village and they realize he's not with them and they run, run back to the city and find him eventually in the temple and he's debating these learned men and he's 12 years old-ish. And his parents come and they said, what, what are you doing? Where have you been? Why, why aren't you with us? Why are you here? And he says, why were you searching for me, Mary and jo uh, mom and dad? Why are you searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Ooh. 
And I wonder what Joseph thought when he said that, right? Like, you want to start something here, boy? I'm going to, like, okay, wait, Father's house, I'm your, okay. I mean, there's so much in that. Why are you thinking about these things in your hearts? That's the next question he's talking as an adult, asking the Pharisees. Men who actually really want to know God, but have gotten so twisted up in their culture and their, uh, their study of Scripture that they can't even see Jesus. And Jesus says, I know what's going on in your hearts. I'm not a normal rabbi. I actually know the questions in your hearts before you even verbalize them. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to get up and walk? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? What a great question for us today. The deepest issues of our heart, the deepest longings that we have, where is your faith? Luke 8.25. Why do you doubt? Why do doubts rise in you? Where is your faith? Jesus doesn't ask with a sense of that you're wrong. He doesn't ask with a sense of shame on you as, as we often do in friendships and as parents. He says, no, I want to know where you are. I want you to know where you're at. I'm going to ask the question because I'm curious and I want us to get to know each other. So where, where is your faith? Because it can be here. Can we go together and have it be here? A few verses later, what is, what is your name? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Later on, suppose one of the, these hundred sheep loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep? Jesus is saying, how do you approach this? Because I want you to know my heart. Because when there's one that's astray, I'm going after that one. That's who I am. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And then today we find ourselves at the last final two. And the first of the final two are why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your mind? I'm going to combine that as one. There's a comma in there. Jesus asked it as a combined question. Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise? Jesus, he knows where we are. Oftentimes we don't. And while we're reading an ancient text that is a couple thousand years old, Jesus is, knows us. Jesus knows us knows where we're at better than we know ourselves and is asking these questions of us today. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your mind? The answer that he provides his disciples in that locked room full of tension and fear is the same answer that is available for us today. After he asks the question, he says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you have. Your mind's already going down this explanation that I'm a ghost. I'm not a ghost. You can't touch ghosts. Like how they knew about ghosts then, I don't know. I don't know anything about ghosts. But he says, ghosts you can't touch. Come, come touch my hands and my feet. Jesus' answer to his friends in that moment was himself. Jesus' answer for us today, for whatever we're dealing with, begins with himself. And he says, come, come closer to me. Come touch my hands, see my feet, see my sight. Doubting time, we don't have this in Luke, but we do have it in John. The doubting Thomas had to actually physically touch his hands. And it says he put his, his finger in his side, which that's a whole thing, but I'm sure there was somebody in the room, maybe off to the back wall on the corner, that when Jesus said that, they could see Jesus and said, I'm in. This is really Jesus. He really is alive. It's not a ghost. I don't understand it all, but I know it. But not, not Thomas. He had to actually physically touch him. Some of us can hear the good news, the gospel declared that Jesus lived, died, was buried, conquered death, and rose again, and we go, we're in. That's the truth I need. And others of us spend a lifetime of going, I'm one foot in, I'm one foot out, I'm one foot in, I'm two foot in, I'm, I'm a little bit back. I, I think I'm, I doubt, I believe, I believe, I doubt. I'm, I'm swirling over years and maybe even decades. And Jesus is there saying, I've got another question for you. I don't know what the question is, but he's asking questions and saying, tell me where you're at and know that I'm the answer. And know that we have it seems to be infinite ability to come up with other answers and other options. 
and we look and we find things. I talked to a, uh, the leader of, uh, if many of, of you know this, if you don't, let me just remind you, there's a, uh, about 150 uh, men that come into this space every Monday evening for, um, for an AA group uh, that's called the Loyola Men's Group. They're not all followers of Jesus, but a number of them are. And they all have a story of trying to find rescue in something other than Jesus, alcohol, substance abuse, harmful habits in their life. And I sat with the leader of it. This group has been going, check this, 70 years. They've been in Northeast Portland for 70 years. One man who used to lead it, who is still there and still plays a key role, has been sober 50 years and a part of this, part of this group. When I met him a few weeks ago, he shared with me that, that his last time, that his last time finding rescue in alcohol was at a restaurant that used to be at the other end of our parking lot here that we share with Bank of America that we get to use now on Sundays. And he said, I was dancing on a table. It's the last time I got drunk in public. A friend called me out and invited me to AA. I've been sober for 50 years. We have this seemingly human, infinite capacity to search for answers other than Jesus to our questions. And Jesus says, look at me. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at my side. Look at my story. This is who I am. I actually did that. I, I went to the cross and I died. And I rose again. And I'm not playing some game with you where I sent my spirit or a ghost or some kind of ethereal, see-through version of me. I did what I said I was going to do, even though you didn't understand it or fully hear me, but I showed up again. I resurrected. I have a new body. I still have the scars, which that's something to think about. Jesus has a new body. If you and I are going to be resurrected and have new bodies, what kind of scars are we going to have? Certainly none as meaningful as Jesus's, but Jesus still has a scar to be able to say, no, it's really me. I'm alive. It's a different body because somehow it can move through walls and doors that are locked. And so I'm going to leave that up to the mystery of God and ask him. We get to heaven and get an answer then. But it's a different kind of body, but it's the same body, but it's the renewed body, but it's there. And Jesus says, I'm the answer to all your questions. I, because I have the privilege of, of standing before you this morning and, and teaching scripture. Maybe I was far more in tune with this than nobody else caught it. But one of the songs that the band chose to sing this morning started with a line that said the question to all of our questions find their answer in you like we sang that this morning that's what this is saying that's what jesus is saying rather than finding rescue in any other form of escape or pleasure or fulfillment which we have this capacity to do and this creative imagination to find other answers jesus says those will all fall short and you'll need me You'll need my story. You'll need my acts of what I did to, to seek and to save you as someone who's lost. I don't know if I read verse 40 yet, but he says this, when he had done this, he showed them his hands and his feet. I want, I want to read the first half of the next verse. It says this, it's verse 41. It says, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, because of joy and amazement, and while they still did not believe it, where would you be if you were in that room? Would you be back in the corner and maybe you were the one that believed it? Would you be doubting Thomas that said, I'm not buying this. I gotta, I gotta touch this and see it and find proof or would you be somewhere in between? This verse says that collectively they weren't in a place of faith. They were not in a place of belief. Um, let me, let's say it another way. They were not in a place of being able to answer a multiple choice question of what had just happened, a true false question of what they had just experienced. They could not articulate the doctrine of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Like they, did, they weren't there yet. They, they did not believe yet. But there's a reason that they didn't believe yet. And this is, so, this is so crazy. Because 
of joy and amazement. Because of joy. And so just like let that sink in for just a second. That seems absolutely bizarre to me. I don't know if you think that's bizarre. This seems bizarre. This seems like a typo in scripture. Everything that I remember growing up and everything to this point in my life that I, if I could just give you a knee-jerk reaction, I would say that those things would, should be reversed. In my, in my human limitations of, of, of who I am and how I'm wired and all that, it seems like those should be reversed. Like I believe and then that leads to joy and amazement because of what I know to be true. But we have it clearly written. They did not believe yet because the reason being, the explanation being because of joy and amazement. They were beginning to experience something before they knew what they were experiencing. They were beginning to have a human connection with the risen king who was curious about them was asking them questions and they were getting connected to him in a way that they had not previously experienced because this had never happened before. And so they had a joy. Now, let's not make the mistake of thinking that joy is like when happiness gets really, really good. Joy and happiness are, are completely distinct experiences in the human condition. Happiness is something that we like because of the things that are happening around us, the circumstances around us. Joy is this thing that is intertwined and deep within our soul that it cannot be extracted based on the external experiences going on. That it's something that is, is, is happening inside of us and it, it's not in isolation. We can't have it happen just us. Joy is only possible when on a deep personal soul level, we're actually known by and connected with another person who has expressed interest and value and attention to us. When somebody else expresses love towards us and we can look them in the eye and say, I know that that is true and legitimate and real, then there is something that's able to happen to us. Let me say it this way. The human being cannot experience the joy that we were designed and have the capacity to have without knowing the God of the universe. It cannot happen. We can get a glimpse of it. We can get a sense of it. We can get a, a, an arrow pointing to it. We can get a sign of it, but we can't actually experience joy without the God of the universe. And so if you were sitting there, oh, I'm, I met Jesus out on a mountaintop. Yeah, that's because God showed up and was there with you. I looked at a beautiful scene and saw something. I, in the midst of struggle and pain, in complete isolation, something happened and turned me and I came to life and I experienced joy. Yeah, it's because God and his Holy Spirit showed up at that moment. Through a relationship of somebody else knowing me and me knowing them, there's something that is unique happens in that connection. God was bringing about a unique experience in that room, and it started with joy, and it moved to an amazement because they couldn't fully understand it. And so, yeah, they couldn't articulate what they believed yet. They didn't know a doctrine or a statement of faith or be able to share the gospel with somebody yet because they were just experiencing it for the first time. And so because that was where they were at and so present for who they were that they hadn't yet totally made sense of it. It took a little time to process through what was going on before they went, oh, actually, but you know what? They got there really quick because what happens next is we turn the page. It's going to be pretty cool. We're going to look at it next week, and then what happens is the Holy Spirit shows up, and then this movement starts that we, 2,000 years later, are a part of, but it started right there in that room when joy and amazement previewed anything that they could fully articulate and fully make sense of. I read this book uh, a, a little while ago. A number of, of you have read it. I've mentioned it before. Um, but it's called The Other Half of Church. I want to read it. Uh, uh, just, it's, I think it is so valuable and captures so much. The subtitle of it is Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. Every single person in this room can connect to at least one of those three. Christian Community, Brain Science, and Overcoming Spiritual Stagnation. Listen to this. It's talking about left brain, right brain stuff. I know it's the end of summer and school's coming. I'm going to just ask you to, to think a little bit deeply right before school year starts right here. We can do this. It's two sentences, left brain and right brain. Left brain is stereotypically um, described as um, kind of like mechanical engineering, kind of um, thinking, uh, knowledge. Uh, right brain is stereotypically uh, described as intimacy, relationship, identity, th those kind of things. It's not totally accurate, but just that's helpful to a little bit of black background to these two sentences, left brain discipleship. Left brain discipleship emphasizes beliefs 
doctrine, willpower, and strategies. That part of our brain, beliefs, doctrine, willpower, and strategies. There are some of us in this room that that's our wheelhouse. That's what we grew up with and that's what we know. That's what we're familiar with. I can articulate what I, can, what I believe. I know my doctrine, and these are vitally important. Willpower, man. You know, maybe there's two kinds of people in this world, some that, that are born with just good willpower and some that, that don't. You know, that, that's not true, but we kind of want to believe that. And so those with willpower think like, oh man, this is going well for me because I can will myself to make right decisions. And that goes really, really well until it doesn't. And strategies, if I can just plan and, and organize it, like that's what I grew up in. And it's not all bad. Oh, but it's, it's one half. There's this whole other part of us, of who we are and who we were created to be. So listen to that again. Left brain discipleship emphasizes beliefs, doctrines, willpower, and strategies, comma, but neglects right brain, get this, loving attachments, joy, emotional development, and identity. It ignores those things. It doesn't fully engage those things. Ignoring right brain relational development creates Christians who believe in God's love, believe in God's love, but have difficulty experiencing it in daily life, especially during distress. We have to identify that that is either a problem or a potential problem in order to avoid it because we have to avoid that. What if we could talk about God's love and define it and recount it and describe it and articulate it, but we had not experienced God's love? There are some of us, and maybe it's more than a few, say, I've heard about God's love. Maybe I've even sung about it. I could tell another person about it, but I don't know that I've actually experienced it. I don't know that I've experienced the God of the universe being curious about me and asking me questions. And Jesus, throughout the book of Luke and throughout the rest of the New Testament, throughout all of it, is, is this story, is this declaration of a God who comes after us and pursues us in all of his perfection and of all of his holiness, of all of who he is, and says, I love you, I've created you, and I love you, and I'm coming after you. I have a dream for us as a church and as a community that we would be a people who, who don't only know how to, to point to God's love in scripture and define it and describe it, but that we could tell our own story of it that we have so experienced it, that whether we define it and believe it all correctly or not, we can tell the story and the experience of the joy of knowing the God of the universe and salvation through Jesus Christ and him alone. And then that would affect how we actually treat one another, so much so that the world looks at us and says, the way they treat and love one another is different than anything else. And they would come to know Jesus because of the way that we love one another, which was Jesus's mandate for them in his last meal before he went to the cross. That all comes out of his 30th question, and it sets up the last question that Jesus, this is the last question that Jesus asks in the book of Luke. It's this. It's the rest of that verse that we read the first part of. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Was so much more funny when I was planning it. That's Jesus' last question. Like, do you have anything more to eat? He just drops this on him. Like, I'm here, I'm not a ghost, I'm for here real. Got anything to eat? That's funny. That's hilarious. And then I mean, it ends with, here, here it ends. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. We've got a few more verses of Luke, but that's like the end. Do you have anything to eat? Jesus sits down for the meal with them. You know, what happens over meals is so significant. What happens with shared food? But what he's doing is he's saying, like, I'm going to eat something that's not going to fall through me. I'm not a ghost. It's not going to end up on the floor. He's saying, like, I'm going I'm to now prove this to you. 
He says, I know where you're at. I know your troubles. I know your doubts. I want you to know them. I'm the answer to all of them. And I'm not going anywhere. And I'm here for real. Do you have anything to eat? I'm going to prove it to you. And he eats with them. And he says, I'm here. And all their joy begins to settle in and shape them and form them and calm their fears. And all the things that were moving all of a sudden start to settle down. And they begin to get to this thing of, I, I know who he is. I can believe and. And I don't know what the future is, but I'm here, I'm with you, and I'm not going anywhere. We get to eat together on a regular basis when we gather. We come to this table. It's Jesus' story of being pierced and bleeding, his body broken. And when we come, it's our way of saying, all of the other rescuers in my life I'm turning my back on. Maybe I said yes to them during this week, but now I'm going to say yes to you, Jesus. And I'm going to say yes to you again and again and again because you see me, you know me, you've laid your life on the line, you've died and rose again. I'm with you. I need you. There's not another answer. And so we take the little bite of cracker that represents his body broken and we take the juice which represents his bloodshed and we taste it. Jesus, do you have anything else for us to eat? Yeah, my story, my truth, my reality. If I'm here, I'm real, I'm resurrected, I'm not going anywhere. We're in this together. And so Jesus, we come today, as we've sung already, as we've looked at your word, as we've sought to hear your voice, would we hear you yet again that you actually know where we're at? You know all of our trouble and all of our discombobulation and all of our fear and all of our frights and all of our doubts and all of our questions and we bring it all to you. And you can handle it all and you're strong enough and you invite it because you know that you're our answer. Would we at the deepest levels of who we are before we even understand all of this going on would we just offer it to you and say I've tasted the joy and I want it again.